Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Professional mountain biker Adam Craig says it's one of the top three places in the universe he's ridden. Where is this magical mountain biking nirvana? It's none other than Brevard, North Carolina, home to Pisgah National Forest and DuPont Recreational Forest. The area boasts over 300 miles of peerless single track, not to mention hundreds of miles of gravel roads, creating a near endless array of routes, terrains, and challenges to explore. Four vibrant bike shops will get you sorted, whether you need gear, service, or a top-notch rental. Top it off with an array of craft breweries, cafes, and gathering spots that have earned Brevard the title as one of the best small towns in America in 2021. It all adds up to a premier mountain biking destination you'll want to experience for yourself. Find out more at explorebrevard.com. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today my guest is Hannah Otto. Hannah is a World Cup mountain bike racer, FKT record holder, and Leadville 100 winner who has been racing since the age of nine years old. Last month, she set the fastest known time for riding the whole enchilada from bottom to top and top to bottom in a time of five hours, 50 minutes, and 38 seconds. Thanks for joining me, Hannah. Yeah, thanks for having me. So nine years old, tell us, how did you get into mountain bike racing at such a young age? Yeah. So I started racing, like you said, when I was nine and I started in the sport of triathlon actually. So I Uh was, I played soccer. Yeah. I played soccer, which is a much more normal sport for a nine-year-old. And I would always ask my mom if I could get to the field early to run laps. And so eventually she said, well, gosh, if you just want to get to the field to run, would you rather do a running race? I said, yeah, that sounds, that sounds good. <laughs> so I went to a running race yeah. and at the race, there was a booth advertising a triathlon and I saw it and I pointed to it and I said, actually, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and so she signed me up for a kid's triathlon camp and then I raced triathlon for the next 11 years. So I raced triathlon from age nine to 20 years old. Um, I competed in on-road draft legal. I raced in races like Escape from Alcatraz, the Pan American Championship for juniors. And then I raced Xterra, where I found mountain biking. Mm. I raced Nika, the high school mountain biking, as a way to train for triathlon. And I discovered this love for mountain biking. Mm -hmm. And at 20 years old, I was on the Cliff Pro Team, which was then the Luna Pro Team for the sport of triathlon. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, we're discontinuing our support of a triathlon program. But if you would like to continue on as a mountain biker, then we'd love to support you as you make that transition. And so I had discovered this love for mountain biking. I had been in endurance sport for a really long time. I had this amazing opportunity in front of me and I took the leap and I'm so happy I did. And Mm. now I've been racing mountain bikes professionally for about six years. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Really interesting. Like how that works out that, yeah, like 
never that wasn't like your intent to start out like as a mountain bike racer but like that's just kind of where you ended up and obviously you're super talented and yeah like a fierce competitor so that's awesome so we're here to talk about your fkt uh, of the whole enchilada how do fkt attempts compare to races that you're in like leadville 100 or even like the world cup cross-country races is one of them more stressful than the other or like more difficult or like what, what are kind of the differences for you? They're very different experiences. And this, you know, I've done a lot of my own personal FKT type of things, you know, everyone's gone off, mm-hmm. gone for that big QM or KOM on Strava, but this was my first time mm-hmm. doing a really large scale one where I hope to create a whole story around it. And it was a very different experience. I didn't know quite what to expect. I thought that it was going to be less nerve wracking, <laughs> but I'll definitely admit the morning of, I was all kinds of nervous because you're the only one out there. Mm. And that's a very different feeling. Right. And you are in many ways fully in control of the outcome. Even the uncontrollables that come, you're in control of how you manage those. And by that, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. in a World Cup, in any of like the lifetime Grand Prix races, gravel races, you're very much at the mercy of others. And sometimes mm-hmm. that can take stress away because if someone attacks, you follow. And if the pace is too hot, right. you have to follow it anyways. And there's not mm-hmm. as much thinking involved as that in that. It's mm-hmm. it's more tactical. It's just I'm more used to it, I suppose. Yeah. In this scenario, being the only one out there, I had to be the one to measure my effort constantly. And then I did it unsupported. So I carried everything I needed and I was in charge of any obstacles or mechanicals or anything that I would face. I would need to make those decisions. And by that, I mean, I did have a camera crew out there, but they did their best to never even be seen as much as possible. And Mm -hmm. they never spoke to me. So I no, I was given no information, nothing of that sort. And so, yeah, it's just the second I took off, I was in my own world and it was just me and my thoughts for the next almost six hours. Wow. Yeah. Do you, do you like get strength or energy like from crowds? Like when you're in a world cup race or, or a Leadville, like, does that, does that energize you or does that add stress to it? I would say it's energizing. I feel like the crowds are energizing and it's exciting and fun, but I think the biggest energy comes from those individual people within the crowd who know your story and who know your goals and what you're after. So it's really crazy how, you know, even in those loud World Cups with thousands of spectators, all the voices are blending together. Mm -hmm. But the second there's a familiar one, you can pick it out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really energizing for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. So yeah, I mean, you mentioned like Strava and QOMs, like, do you do you go after those? Like, do you have some of those and that you like have worked toward getting or, or is that just like a byproduct of, of your training and just like some of the rides you do for fun? A little bit of both. I think that on the mountain bike, the Strava QOMs and KOMs can actually be really helpful because it's a little bit harder to 
measure them, measure trails perfectly um, in terms of power or effort. So if I'm doing an interval workout, then I'm usually on the road measuring my power with my power meter. But sometimes as a mountain biker, you want to also measure your ability to handle the technical trails and the flow and how efficiently are you riding. And that's when I feel like timing myself and measuring my own time over and over and over again can be really helpful. And that's where I do have different segments on trails that I sort of use as benchmarks year over year. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you're also sort of competing with yourself and yeah, that's a super convenient way to do it. Absolutely. And that's something I love about the FKT format in general is I feel like it's an opportunity to compete against yourself. And I think that that really opens it up for everyone to have a place in this competition because whether or not you can set Mm. the fastest known time, you can set your fastest time. And so looking back, I mean, there's things that I know that I know I can go even faster on an even better day. And that's exciting to me because in mountain biking, there's so many elements, there's fitness, there's all of your equipment, there's environmental conditions, there's your technical ability. And so there's so many places to improve that Mm. it just feels like improvement is endless and limitless. And so I think that's a really fun thing that I hope people take away from this film and this experience is a challenge to whether or not you think you can beat my time to try and beat your own time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. So tell us about the whole enchilada FKT attempt. Why that route? Why the whole enchilada? Yeah. The whole enchilada, because I think it is just the most spectacular trail in the world. I think that Mm. this started as a little bit of love relationship with me and this trail. I started riding this trail probably five years ago. And the first time I rode it, I just felt totally in awe. It starts, the actual descent starts above treeline, dips down into aspen trees and groves, goes through a rooted steep descent, pops out in a meadow that's very flowy with big berms and even some jumps. And then it comes out in this harsh desert terrain with really rocky, sandy, sharp rocks. Then it comes out into slick rock and ultimately ends at the Colorado River. And the experience to me just felt like everything that mountain biking is supposed to be. It's a chance to handle all types of elements, a chance to adapt to your surroundings. And so I just fell in love with this idea that this trail really pushed me to my limits as a mountain biker, because every time I rode it, it was different and it forced me to adapt. And watching other people ride it, being a very famous trail, watching other people ride it, I discovered it took other people to their limits as well, but in different ways, which shows me that it was exposing people's strengths and weaknesses. And as I got this idea of the FKT, I thought, well, the only thing that this is really missing is that physical fitness element of 
getting mm-hmm. up there. And so that was one reason I wanted to add the climb was I felt like with the climb and the descent, it was everything that mountain biking is to me. And by doing it as an FKT on my own, mm-hmm. I also added that sense of adventure and self-supported empowerment. And to me, that was just the full package. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you said you, you first wrote it five years ago. Did you first write it as a shuttle? I mean, that's how most people would write it. Or did you did you decide to, to climb up there? Um, I... The only time I've done the full thing as the climb and descent was in the FKT. I've ridden up parts of it. So I've like ridden up to UPS before, but climbing all the way top to the top of Burrow was the very first time in the FKT. Mm, Wow. Yeah. And so how many times would you say you've done the descent or like some portions of the descent? Oh gosh, a lot. Probably at least a dozen. I mean, I did the descent. Oh, wow. I did the descent four times just in preparation for this project. Wow. Cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds like training <laughs> that a lot of people would be into. Exactly. Exactly. It was a big project, but every time it would feel tiring or you know, whatever emotion you can imagine, I would just pause and look around and see the red rock and I would just feel totally blown away by gratitude that I get to do this. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So I was looking at Strava uh, for this route, you know, climbing up the fire road, descending whole enchilada. And as far as I could tell, all of the fastest times were posted by men. Um, So how did it feel to best all of the, all of the men who've attempted it by nearly an hour, really close (laughs) to an hour? Is, is how, how bad you beat the next closest person. <laughs> I was shocked because I had never ridden that full climb. I really didn't know what to expect. And that trail, like I said, it, it just, there's so many elements involved. It felt hard to believe that I would get a clean run. Mm-hmm. And so going into it, you know, I, I felt like, you know, about a month out, I said out loud, okay, I think I can break seven hours. And that became my goal. Mm-hmm. Then when I went down there and I started pre-riding, I said, you know, on a really, really good day, I think I could break six and a half. And the night before the film actually was the first time I said, I think on the best day I could break six. Yeah. And even then I thought, oh my gosh, I think I even said to the film crew, because I said it on camera, and then I said, oh my gosh, I think I just set myself up for disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And the climb actually took longer than I thought it would. So when I reached the top of Burrow, I put that idea of breaking six completely out of my head. And I stopped looking at the time Mm -hmm. altogether until 10 miles to go. I flipped the page on my stages cycling computer. And that was when I realized I could still break six hours. So it wasn't until 10 (laughs) miles to go that it really hit me like, oh my gosh, I'm on pace. Um, So that was really when I got that big boost of adrenaline of what I can do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like though you're already thinking, 
you know, that, that you could improve that time. So, I mean, what do you think, what do you think now? What is like the possible on your best, best day, your very best day? I mean, apparently this wasn't your best day. You've got, you've got more in store. So what do you think now? Well, yeah, I think for me on this day, I definitely put forth my very best effort. I took myself to the absolute limits and I had mm. a flawless take at it. And by that, I mean, I had no crashes and I had no mechanicals, which I think for this trail is a major, major accomplishment. Yeah, for sure. There were three factors that I know that they did add a little bit of time. So it could be more perfect whether or not I'll ever achieve that (laughs) perfection, you know, because one thing goes better. Another thing goes a little bit more askew. You never really know. Right. But those three factors were going out of town. I had a pretty big headwind, which was the thing that really kind of, I had to calm myself down from the start because I took off out of town and one mile later, you kind of make a turn and the headwind just felt like it slapped me in the face and immediately sense it. It's not a race where in a race, you'd be thinking thoughts like everyone has the same conditions. Everyone's dealing with the same thing. Mm -hmm. Instead, you have thoughts of, oh my gosh, maybe I should have picked a different day. This wasn't the right conditions <laughs> right. to go for, you know, cause you're in control of those things. So yeah. quickly I had to push that aside and just not worry about the fact that I was moving a little bit slower in those initial miles. The next obstacle mm-hmm. I had to meet was since Burrow Pass tops out at 11,000 feet, anyone who's ridden this trail will know that conditions up there change fast and they're almost never perfect. Hitting the window of being able to get to the top of Burrow Pass in general is really hard to hit because the snow comes, Mm. weather comes, thunderstorms come. And so I think it's difficult to get good conditions up there anyways, Mm -hmm. but I did encounter a lot of mud, mud that was, you know, caking up my bike where it was very, very difficult to ride. Um, and that was for about two miles. And then I think this is the most hilarious thing that happened was as I started to come down Burrow Pass, there's a lot of cows in that area, which is, Mm -hmm. I think, really funny because it's so out there. If you've ever been out there, you just feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, but there's all these cows. And I was on a really narrow section of single track with a steep wall and then a steep drop off. And the cows were just walking in a single file line on the single track. And it was so (laughs) steep on both sides that they couldn't get off the trail. So despite my best efforts to kind of (laughs) encourage them along, go, go, get out of the way. Come on. Getting, getting really close to them to encourage them. They just kept looking back at me and then continuing on their way. So (laughs) I had to actually get off my bike and walk behind these cows for probably about five minutes also. So just little things here, there that, (laughs) you know, nothing major, which I think is so, I just couldn't believe that I didn't have any major issues out there. But I think just these small little elements show that this trail has so much going on that I think that's a cool thing is anyone who attempts this, we will all have different stories to tell. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I've seen those cows up there too. And yeah, I mean, you're saying it's funny. I'm intimidated. Like some of those are, are kind of scary, especially when there's like a bull 
in the area or you don't know if like one of them's a bull or some of them are bulls. And yeah, that, that can be kind of scary in my opinion. But you know what's so funny about that is, and this kind of shows how much thought I put into this FKT was that I was actually a conversation I had in preparation is how dangerous are these cows and how close can I get to them? So I had even thought through (laughs) that process. (laughs) Wow. That's great. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect segue into my next question about like what type of specific training you did to this route. I mean, you mentioned uh, doing the descent several times, but yeah, was there other like specific training in terms of the climb or the conditions or anything that that you did? Yeah, I mean, this came at the end of my very long race season. So in terms of like training for fitness and things like that, I felt like I really had that dialed into the best of my abilities at this point. You know, I think an effort like Leadville mm-hmm. definitely prepared me and made me feel confident that I could handle the physical aspect of this route. Mm-hmm. So for me, the preparation was very much a matter of dialing in this specific terrain. So I think the most unique thing that I did to prepare was I actually rode the descent on two different bikes. So the first time I rode the descent, I rode it on my pivot firebird, which is an enduro bike. So it has a lot more travel. And I did that in order Mm -hmm. to really be able to feel confident and secure on the trail because there's some really difficult features. So my first goal was to get out there and establish confidence. And then after I did that, I took out my pivot mock 4SL, which is what I ultimately did the attempt on. And I used those skills of confidence that I gained on the bigger bike in order to then feel that same level of confidence, even on a smaller travel bike. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like all your gear held up really well too. No mechanicals on the trail. Was there anything else like in addition to the bike that you were like really glad you had or, or were there things that you were like, Oh man, like maybe I should have had a longer travel dropper post for the next one or or wider bars or was there anything like that that you would have changed or anything that you found worked really well? Gosh, I feel like given the fact that I had no mechanicals and it all went so smoothly in terms of equipment, there's nothing that I would change. So Mm. I typically ride a 32 step cast from Fox. And for this, I rode a 34 to have 120 millimeters. So that was a change that I made to my bike. And then I rode a Kenda 2.4 SCT booster tire, which I felt like Mm. just gave me a little bit more confidence. And then I had a cush core in the rear, which I felt like was also very important for some of these hard impacts. But you also can't always anticipate them. There were several kind of, oh gosh, moments as you're coming up to an edge and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a drop. And you're just, you know, adjusting <laughs> your body weight and sending it <laughs> kind of last right. minute. Yeah. And so I felt like those were really critical pieces for me. I would say one thing that in retrospect, I might do slightly different was I think I carried all the right amount of fluids, but I was a little bit nervous about running out. And so I rationed my fluids a lot more at the start than I maybe should have, because Mm -hmm. on the descent, I realized I didn't need 
as much fluids as I did on the climb. So if I did it again, I would be a lot more liberal with my drinking on the climb, knowing that on the descent, I won't feel the urge to drink as much. Yeah. What, how much did you bring? I didn't even think of that. Like how much, how much fluid did you bring with you? Cause like a, a normal camelback, I mean, I would think maybe that's enough, but I don't know. Everybody's different. So yeah. Did you carry like a ton of, of water and hydration drinks? This was something I had to debate for a long time because I think for anyone listening, if you go out on the whole enchilada trail, especially depending on the time of year, water is so essential. People get taken out of there because of dehydration. And so I wanted to be really smart about it. And they're just doing the descent. It, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you, you probably sweated a ton going up. Yeah. Yeah. It can be a much longer day than people anticipate. So I think for the average individual tackling this, more is better. But since I had to climb for three and a half hours, I didn't want to carry unnecessary weight. I only wanted to carry what I needed. Mm. And so I carried a pack that was one and a half liters, and then I had a bottle. So essentially what I had was two liters of water. Wow. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a lot to a lot of people, I'm I'm sure, right? Like, I'm trying to think. I haven't worn a hydration pack in years, but... I mean, a lot of them are like three liters, right? Like, are those the biggest? It's a very small, yeah, it was the, it was the Useway Outlander pack and it's really small. It's a very low profile sort of race design. So yeah, it's not a lot at all. But like I said, I was hoping to be out there for just under six hours (laughs) And I had calculated it. But the other really interesting thing to consider is starting at 4,000 feet, topping out at over 11,000 feet, and then coming back down, the temperature swing was massive. So I started just after 7 a.m. So it wasn't hot at the start. And then at the top, it was, I think, just under 40 degrees. So it was in the 30s at the top. The roots were iced over still in the morning. And then finishing back down in Moab at the Colorado River, it was 80 degrees. So there's a big temperature (sighs) swing out there that you have to anticipate. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And I mean, it does seem too, though, that, I mean, October is probably about the best conditions you can hope for, right? In terms of like, there's not snow hopefully up top yet. And yeah, the temperatures aren't, aren't too hot or too cold. So yeah, definitely like a narrow window you had there. Yeah, definitely. I think October is the most popular time of year. <laughs> yeah. Did you see other folks out there when you were making your attempt? I did see a few. Um, I actually intentionally tried to time it with the shuttles where I wouldn't have a lot of traffic, but certainly in the days leading up where I was shuttling, there's a lot of people out there and on the climb, the shuttles were passing me on the way up, which was kind of a fun experience as well to see them all shuttling up and yeah. me making the climb. But so I saw, I saw a few people, but not a ton. Yeah. Interesting. So in addition to being a world-class athlete, you're also a coach. So how important is it to have a good coach? Have you, have you had coaches that have like made a big difference for you in, in terms of being an athlete? Yeah. I have been working with my coach, Chris Molesky, for seven years now. Mm. So he's been really integral in my career and my success. And he's been on, like I said, I've been a professional mountain biker for six years. So he's been on 
this entire journey with me. Mm. So I think, I think it's essential, even for me, like you said, I am a coach and I still lean heavily on my coach because you need that extra set of eyes and you need someone to Mm -hmm. guide you because even if you have the knowledge, it's too hard to be within yourself and subjective. You need someone that you can trust Mm -hmm. to look outwardly and objectively. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, what have you learned by watching other coaches over the years? I mean, not just your coach, but maybe like other professional athletes, you know, like in terms of how they work with their coaches, like what, have you seen some things that maybe aren't good or or things that are good? What's kind of your takeaway from, from what other coaches are doing? Yeah, I think that throughout my career, working with athletes, being an athlete, working with my coach and watching other coaches, I think one of my biggest takeaways is how important the relationship between the coach and the athlete is. Because a lot of, as a coach, I think in school or in training, there's a really large emphasis on the physiology, the science, and you need that. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's really important. But the piece that is often missed is that you're working with people. It's never just numbers on a screen. Mm -hmm. And everyone has a different story and a different life and different obstacles. And so meeting people where they're at Mm -hmm. with the things going on in their life is what makes a really good coach, is one that can adapt and be flexible enough to make someone the best they can be, even in less than optimal situations and scenarios that they go through in their life. And in that same way, breathing belief into the athlete. I'll often say that I feel like the second an athlete comes to me before a race or a big effort and says, I'm not sure I can achieve my goal. I feel like that's when my job becomes the most important. Because that's when I need Mm. to back up everything we've worked on and show them, look at everything you've done. I know you can do this. And it's not enough that I know. I have to find a way to get them to know. And I think that's one of the most important parts of coaching. Yeah. Did you have that conversation with your coach before the FKT? Like, you know, it sounds like you were kind of going back and forth, like, I don't know how fast I can do this, maybe under seven, maybe under six. I mean, was, was your coach kind of feeding that to you or, or how, how did that conversation go? Yeah. So we talked, my coach and I talked a lot about the power numbers on the climb because I, since I was going to need to pace myself and I didn't have any other athletes to sort of lead the charge or respond to attacks or lead the attack, I had to be fully responsible for the pace. And so my coach and I talked a lot about the power numbers that I would hold and also the interesting element of since you're going from 4,000 feet to 11,000 feet, there's a difference in elevation and therefore oxygen and therefore power output. So also trying to anticipate how my power might shift throughout the climb and mentally preparing for the fact that your numbers will likely start to drop, but that doesn't mean that you're bonking or getting slower. It's a natural progression of this type of ride. And my coach, when he told me the numbers that I should hold, I thought, okay, wow, I that's uh, 
a little bit more than I thought. And then sure enough, within 30 minutes out there, I was already above that power having to hold myself back. So it was, and I think actually when I got to the top, I was like perfectly at the number that he had given me. And so Mm. (laughs) massive kudos to him for being to anticipate that whole swing. Because again, that's another place where I think, like I said, you need that objective outsider because when he said those numbers, I thought, is that really something that I can do? But Mm -hmm. as someone who knows me and who believes in me, he could say yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so cool. So you've studied uh, physiology and nutrition, and you recently wrote an article about how caffeine affects athletic performance. Do you use caffeine before or during races and and especially during this FKT? Like, was caffeine a part of that for you at all? So I have a degree in athletic training, which is a healthcare profession and exercise science. Okay. Yeah. So I don't have... Uh, I'm not a nutritionist, but I've certainly done my fair share of research and I really enjoy that. So that's something I've done a lot of writing on this year is different nutritional interests. Cause I think that's a huge part of these long races too, that often gets missed. It's really the mm-hmm. one of the most important pieces out there because you can be the fittest in the world and still falls so short if you're not fueling properly. So all of that to say, I do use caffeine as a longer attempt that wasn't a major factor in this where I wasn't necessarily calculating that out, Mm -hmm. but I did have caffeine in the morning, you know, just to start all of the day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, so then, yeah, that makes me think that then is caffeine more for those like shorter efforts and like, you know, almost like sprint type races, whereas you see a longer six hours of riding is caffeine less of a factor or like less helpful for you personally anyway? I mean, caffeine can help with focus and lowering rate of perceived exertion. And so it really does have a place in both long and short events. For me personally, I tend to use it for the shorter events because the loading process can be a little bit different than trying to sustain something across a six hour effort, but it's different for everyone. I think that depending, and that's another thing about caffeine is it does, everyone responds to it differently. There are non-responders as well, and then there are hyper responders. And so it really depends where you sit in that sort of framework as to whether or not you want to take that on. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. So let's talk about rest and recovery. Do you have a routine that you use after every big effort? And if so, what is what does that look like for you? Mm, yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that the answer is yes. But I think that part of that routine actually starts with the knowledge that you're going to feel pretty darn bad. And being able to accept that. That's something that I think I've Mm -hmm. had to learn actually in the recent years as I've done some of these longer events. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, after a race like Leadville or one of these attempts, sometimes I'll wake up the next morning and actually feel almost ill. It's not just soreness. It's your whole body just having complete and total fatigue. And so I think that 
part of recovery starts with acknowledging that that's okay. It <laughs> doesn't mean that you've dug yourself a hole you can't get out of, but it's also signaling to yourself that it's time to recover. It's not time to push through. Yeah. And so for me, the first place that I look for something like that is the nutrition. So a lot of the time rehydration is really huge for me. So that's a big focus. And then, you know, if you're talking about recovery modalities, stretching, foam rolling, I think that actually napping is one of the best things that you can do for recovery mm. to get in just a little bit extra recovery in the middle of the day. It's almost like a little mm -hmm. cheat code to add into your sleep. Yeah. And then just not rushing back into it too quickly. This type of an effort, one off day is not, that's not all that it takes. And so you can't expect your body <laughs> to come back after an off day. And then why do I still feel this way? It's a several day process for sure. Yeah. Well, how did you feel after the FKT? Was it like, did you feel better or worse compared to like some of your other races this year? I would say it's funny because the film crew asked me that that night at dinner is how do you feel like mm -hmm. physically? Is it like a big training day? Is it like a world cup? And I would equate the feeling after this FKT to similar to the feeling after Leadville. It was that type of effort. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in similar, I guess not distance, right. But maybe time on the bike. I mean, Leadville is a little bit, it would be couple hours longer, I'm guessing at least, right? So Leadville was just under seven and a half. So this was about an hour oh, and a half geez. shorter. It's <laughs> very similar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But within an hour. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So which races or FKTs are you targeting for 2023? Have you thought ahead to that? Or are you just like, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just going to rest for a couple months. <laughs> I'm trying to rest. I mean, my brain, I feel like, is always reeling with ideas and excitement. And so, you know, I do have big goals for Paris. And so Pro XCTs and World Cups will definitely be at the top of my list. But I think the Lifetime Grand Prix series will be coming out soon, uh, what races they'll be including in that. And I hope to be able to make that a part of my schedule as well. And yeah, it, I, like I said, this was my first large scale FKT and I love this trail so much that I went into it having no idea what to expect, just wanting to kind of do like an ode to the whole enchilada sort of thing and having mm, yeah. walked away from it with such an incredible experience, I am starting to dream up what could be next. And I don't know what that is yet, but, uh, I will definitely keep you in the loop because I'm sure it'll be something. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, and this film is, it really is, it's an ode to the the whole enchilada and hopefully lots of people will see it. And uh, yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, we will have a link uh, to the film, which will be out by the time this episode airs. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.